You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined by Oliver Camacho and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week we go inside the huddle with children's book author Carolyn Sloan, whose new picture book, Welcome to the Opera, much to my surprise, does not use the story of Lady Macbeth and Mitsensk to introduce opera to its newest audiences. Then we'll notch six more items from our Callus 100 countdown, take a peek into the listener mailbag, and recap the music of the Super Bowl. We hear Taylor's boyfriend did a good job at the Usher concert. Plus, <laughs> is Sir Punch Slappy at Grab? ready to return to the stage find out on the two-minute drill make sure you subscribe to our podcast on spotify hit follow on apple Podcasts. click that plus sign send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes mailbag at operaboxscore.com or just record your thoughts using the you got something to say tab on our website operaboxscore.com however you contribute you'll get an obs beer coaster an obs lapel pen and a number one OBS fan foam finger just for sharing your own hot take. And that is legally binding. If you get it, you have to be our number one fan. Isn't that right, Oliver Camacho? I know we're going to talk about it soon, but uh, I will say that I watched all of the first half of the Super Bowl, got bored after the (laughs) halftime show. I started watching True Detective episode five. And when I came back, it was still happening. I was like, holy crap, what did I miss? (laughs) It looked like it was a good second half of the game. (laughs) Well, it was a good third half of the game, I'll say that. It's second time in history, I believe, it's been stretched that far. And uh, Ashley Hardgrave, you were there for every riveting second, weren't you? I sure was, and you are correct. That is only the second Super Bowl in history to go into overtime. Um, Gentlemen, do you ever find something out and you're, you're so mad that you didn't know this before, especially in the context of what we do on the show? I have just discovered that Andy Reid, who is the head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, he's a singer. And he sings at least once a season in the chorus with Lyric Opera of Kansas City. And guys, he's good. He was on an episode of this podcast called The Huddle Pod. They were interviewing, you know, in sort of all the Super Bowl prep stuff. They posted it last week. And they sort of mentioned offhand, they're like, yeah, aren't you a bit of a musician? And he sort of offhandedly, oh, yeah, you know, I sing with the Lyric Opera when I have time. And then all of a sudden, he starts busting out Largo. And it's good. If we'd had this information when we were doing our our uh, our usual ranking of like the Super Bowl teams, we might have actually gotten it right this time. <laughs> Maybe that would have tipped the scale, you know? Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Carolyn Sloan is a native New Yorker and the daughter of two New York City public school teachers. She began playing classical piano at seven and attended the performing arts fame high school in Manhattan. Enamored with the world of singer-songwriters, she spent much of her early career writing and performing her own compositions for theater, television, and advertising jingles. Carolyn's created over 75 songs for young students and values having children experience music through the joy of actual music making teaching them to compose, play, sing, explore, and listen with a critical ear. She's the author of three books, including the recent Welcome to the Opera. 
Carolyn joins us from New York City. Carolyn, thanks so much for being on the show with us this week. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me, George. We want to get to the book, and we will get to the book in a second. As I said in the introduction, part of your career has been spent composing advertising jingles. Like, what makes a good advertising jingle? Well, it's got to be short. <laughs> it needs to be 15, 30 seconds, or 60, but 60 is rare. Um, I mean, I wrote jingles a while back, so I'm sure it's changed by now, but um, I think it's catchy. The melody has to be catchy. Um, it needs to, when I say catchy, it needs to be memorable, right? Mm -hmm, right. Uh, and um, it needs to be melodic, right? So people can, that's part of it being memorable. People can sort of grab onto it and sing it, right? Or, you know, even little things like the, they used to have, you know, melodic tones for NBC. I'm probably dating myself. But um, NBC. Exactly, know, right. The bell that tones, yeah. It makes you remember, you know, and gives you something to, it's an extra branding effect. So it's just short, memorable, um, something catchy um, that, you know, people can sort of grab onto. Nationwide is on your side. Yeah, exactly, exactly, you know. <laughs> Hallmark sends your love, you know, kind of thing, or send Hallmark because Hallmark sends your love or something like that. <laughs> You've got a new book out. It's called Welcome to the Opera, Pictures by Haley Quarles. This is your third book, I believe. Yes. So why why this book now? How does this book fit in with the other two books you've, you've written? And, and what was the reason behind this one? I was a music educator for many years, and I saw firsthand that a lot of children knew very little about these classic idioms of music, like symphonic music or jazz music or opera, or even some aspects of popular music like theater music. Um, and I thought, you know, why, and I was teaching children in New York City, you know, why kids who have access to all of this right around them, why are they not going to hear live music? And I thought, well, you know, maybe it might be worthwhile to kind of create a concert in a book, if you will. And that was part of what I was trying to do. And um, I was also trying to make very kind of abstract concepts. Like we talk about melody, but think about it. If you're a young child and you have never really heard that word, it's really hard to understand what a melody is until you actually hear one and you define it um, in terms that they can understand. So I wanted to provide sonic or audible concrete examples for children in these books, also to help teachers make these abstract concepts concrete. And quite frankly, I, you know, I'm a mom, so I didn't want to carry um, a CD in a book. And now, of course, you know, all of our computers and you know, don't have CD drives anymore. So I didn't want to carry around extra stuff. It's just more stuff to lose. And it was so like cumbersome. I said, why, I don't understand. Why don't we just put the music right into the book? You know, so I started <laughs> investigating that and talking to people about it. And, you know, what's kind of fun fact about this is that most publishers were like, oh no, we can't do that. <laughs> Amazing. I like, yeah, I, was like, I don't understand why. The technology is there. In fact, people were thought it was sort of funny because a lot of people were doing ebooks at the time. And I said, no, no, no. Kids like to 
feel stuff, you know, they're, they're, they are tactile, their sensory awareness needs to be developed. They want to turn the page. They like, you know, to hold something. Grandparents like to hold a book and read to their children, but they should also be able to push buttons and kids love to do that. So um, luckily Workman was totally game and they were like, yeah, we can do this. Um, I was very excited to work with them. And uh, that's kind of how it started. The book is so beautifully laid out and uh, parents around the nation are thanking you not only for writing this book and not having a CD, but also for having a very discreet on off switch for the uh, speaker. Yes, <laughs> of course. The the book the book is laid out in these sort of three tracks as I see it right you have this story of these three dogs who are going to the opera for the first time then you've got the mm, technical track I suppose which is you know sound and then you have this educational track right which is terms like mezzo soprano overture so it sort of lives in these three different parallel stories yeah well um, we wanted to be able to give kids and caregivers different ways to read the book or to experience the book. You know, that's why I think these books, you know, Welcome to the Opera and Welcome to Symphony and Welcome to Jazz, um, all appeal to a wide range of ages, with, um, meaning that you can have a kid really as young as two or three who enjoy just pushing the buttons and listening to the music in the book. And they're not reading the book, they, and they can enjoy it on their own just doing that. Um, then you have kids as old as eight or nine years old who can read the whole book themselves and read the historical background. They can read the story in the banner. They can read the dialogue among the different characters and the voice bubbles. They can read the whole thing themselves. And of course, they love, still love to push the buttons and hear the music. So um, it's, it's kind of a, a way to experience the book with different kind of tracks, if you will. Welcome to the opera talks about the magic flute. Why that show as the centerpiece for this work? Well, you know, opera is, well, first it's an incredible medium which brings together, you know, theater and music and movement. And, you know, it's just, the, it's so rich. Um, however, a lot of operas um, have very kind of adult themes and are not necessarily stories that you want to tell, you know, a five-year-old child. So um, there were a couple that we were deciding between. Um, the two that came down to it were, well, there was, uh, the obvious one is um, uh, the, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the story. Um, the witch and putting the kids in the oven. Yeah, Hansel and Gretel, Humperdinck, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I can't believe I blanked on that. <laughs> but um, Hansel and Gretel, and then the other one that we're really considering was the Barber of Seville because it has such famous Ooh. arias, you know, Figaro, uh, Figaro. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, which would be fun. Uh, but we thought that the magic flute with the theme of like good versus evil and the kind of like the fairy tale like prince and princess and the king and we just thought that was going to be easier to relate to um, and a more kind of you know quote unquote magical story for the children to read and also let's be real here but the music in the magic flute is incredible. It's Mozart. And you, you know, you talked about what makes a good jingle. If Mozart lived today, he'd probably be writing jingles. <laughs> His music 
is so um, identifiable and so catchy and so melodic and, you know, um, melodically so rich. Um, so that was, those were the reasons why we chose that. Yeah, it's such a great choice, right? Because a lot of children probably will actually see this opera as one of the first pieces that they that they see. Uh, it's a Zingspiel, of course. So it has these spoken dialogues, uh, which are often done in the language of the audience. So, you know, say German and in the original language. Um, and then those spoken dialogues are interspersed with accompanied recitative, which you talk about, and then also arias and ensembles as well. H how did you try and capture whether in your words or in the choices of music that you had in the book or in Kaylee's pictures, how did you try and capture the feeling of, of what it's like to go see this show? Uh, well, um, Kaylee did a really amazing job of, you know, depicting the stage with amazing um, costumes for the characters. We had a, lots of talks about costumes. So we really wanted um, you to feel like you had front row seats to this uh, show. Um, and then in addition, the music would make it real for you. So you'd be looking at these really beautiful pictures of the, the characters on the stage and hearing them sing. And then um, we have on every page a blue banner at the top on the left that tells the story or summarizes the story um, of the magic flute so you know what's going on and then you get to hear what the characters are singing about with the buttons and then the the dogs are talking amongst themselves about the different concepts you know so that kids can be educated as to what they're hearing now a singspiel you know quite frankly until i started researching this opera that was a new concept to me right. i hadn't really heard singspiel before and that really is very close to what we think of as musical theater now, where you have songs and you also have spoken dialogue. So this opera was really, you know, was written for the people, you know, was written to be appreciated by everybody and was, um, you know, written that way so that people could enjoy it. So it wasn't only sung through. <clears throat> the team that are living inside this book is a cast of over a dozen plus another 12 instrumentalists. What was that process of casting this show essentially? And I, I'm not trying to make it more than it is, but you are, you know, you're casting these roles and you're expecting them to sing and to have their voices, you know, built into this book. Well, fortunately, um, because I live in New York City, where it's we're home to lots of artists, and also because I'm in and was in the music world for a long time, um, my husband is a Broadway performer and my son is a professional musician. So um, I'm fortunate that I sort of move in those circles to a certain degree, um, but what i have always done is give opportunities to young artists who are either just graduated from conservatories in and around new york city um or or even in the midwest because our queen of the night um maggie kinnebrew is actually she was a student at um indiana conservatory right. mm -hmm. um, so i uh asked my son sam zagnet um to help 
with the orchestral tracks to the piece. And um, he did a beautiful job of kind of condensing the score to like a chamber ensemble, which was really lovely. And then, um, and we had musicians, you know, from Manhattan School, from Juilliard, from Curtis, from Indiana, from Manus School of Music. So uh, all around. Um, and then singers, Sophia Hunt um, is an old student of mine, actually, that I taught for many years. And she sings Pamina. Yes, she sings Pamina. And um, she uh, made some recommendations, but also Samuel Rockmuth, who is a singer, he's a bass baritone who attends the Manus School. He actually um, helped cast as well. So um, with the help of all those people, because you know, something like this is really teamwork, right? right. You, you don't do this only one person. Um, and then, you know, we did the studio sessions. And, you know, these young performers are amazing. And they're very, very, very talented. They're Some of them are the best, you know, you're going to see that they're going to come up and be some of the best performers that you'll hear and see in the future. Um, uh, Pamina, Sophia Hunt is already singing with um, a young artist group at the Dutch National Opera. Yes. And, uh, Sam performs, Sam Zagnet performs with groups like Orpheus, the Virginia Symphony, Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. So, um, and Samuel Rockmuth is, um, has done stuff with Sarasota Opera. So a lot of them are going to be the future of yeah. the of music. So um, it was a delight to work with them. They're all super great at what they do. And um, I love working with young people and also giving them the opportunities to do what they are good at doing. What's next for you? Is there another book in store? Is there another project coming up? Well, we're hoping to do a new one. <laughs> of course. I can't, I can't talk about it too much, but I'll just say that it's super fun. Also theatrical, but um, kind of a different genre. Great. Maybe maybe it's a, a piece, you know, somebody from the second Viennese school, like Schoenberg or Baer, <laughs> sort of like Wojciech Jr. I, the, the kids will love it. Uh, Carolyn, let us know. Uh, the book is out now, of course. Let us know where to get Welcome to the Opera. Sure. Welcome to the Opera is available wherever books are sold. You can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it online at Barnes & Noble. You can... Um, any independent bookstore um and if they don't have it they usually can order it for you so anywhere books are sold you'll also find a link on our website operaboxscore.com carolyn before i let you go of course as you know we talk a little bit of sports on the show the super bowl in the books now did you happen to watch the super bowl or usher on the halftime show you know, I actually was at a a friend's music performance for the first half of the Super Bowl. I know it's sort of sacro, uh, <laughs> but um, I am not the biggest sports fan. Although I do recognize the um, really the connection between what it takes to be a superior athlete and a superior musician. Thanks so much for hanging out with us, Carolyn. Thank you for having me, George.
Thank you, George. And thanks once again to Carolyn Sloan for joining us here on Opera Box Score. And once again, a reminder to all of our listeners, you can send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes on anything we're talking about today on the episode. The email is mailbag at operaboxscore.com, or you can just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say tab on our website, operaboxscore.com, and get that fantastic foamy finger. You know you want it. Uh, that was maybe a little bit too sensual a read for that. <laughs> That. I do want it. You want it too. Uh, I want to I read the listener mailbag. Yeah, you got something to say? Then yeah, all right, you can say something. This is listener mailbag. All right, we've got another selection here in the listener mailbag. Kenny in Flint, Michigan writes, Great interview with Melissa Dunphy. I do believe that like cricket, there are people that might go to a cycle of Stockhouse and Licht performances and hope that there's an open bar in the theater. I mean, honestly, me too. <laughs> I am almost over the Lions loss. Go Chiefs. Me too, Kenny. Thank you so much for writing. And what a great little segue into a wrap up of the Super Bowl, which mm. we didn't actually mention the winner at the top of the episode. The Kansas City Chiefs <laughs> did, in fact, win their second Super Bowl in two years. I think it's their third in five, something like that. In, but in case you are really out of the loop on football, that is the one that Taylor's boyfriend is on. So, yes. So Taylor's boyfriend and his friends played a game uh, around the Usher concert. That's really the thing <laughs> that you need to know. Uh, and since we are a sports and music podcast, let's talk about the music that happened at the sports ball event. So there's kind of like the pre-show stuff that happens, and then there is the spectacle that is the halftime show. So in the beginning, you always have uh, Lift Every Voice and Sing, America the Beautiful, and then the National Anthem. And so for each of those, we had Andrew Day doing Lift Every Voice, Post Malone doing America the Beautiful, and then the one, the only, she is beauty, she is grace, Reba McIntyre <laughs> doing the National Anthem. So it was a triple anthem. Yeah, it's true. One b- representing the uh, the black of national anthem, then the alternative of national anthem, America the Beautiful, and then a, a country version of the Star Spangled Banner. It really hits the whole political spectrum. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I meant. <laughs> we, yeah, it was it was quite the uh, the Americana celebration. I mean, I think the two things that are that really stuck out for me in the opening ceremonies music were uh, arrangements. The arrangements were pretty non-traditional um the the arrangement they did for lift every voice was really stunning it it had it took some really cool twists and turns post malone pulled out the acoustic version of his musical self you know he's really kind of known for like hip-hop and trap and like electro pop rap but this was just him and a guitar and it was gentle and it was sincere he kind of went pre-malone with it yeah oh boo uh and then of course reba listen you will never hear me say an ill word not one about our queen reba but it was just a pretty straightforward (laughs) anthem with a couple of interesting chord changes. So when we're talking about sort of the vocal winner of the pregame ceremonies, it's got to be Andrew Day. It's got to be Andrew Day. Number one, she has a phenomenal instrument. Number two, she knows how to use her head voice, and she employed it very beautifully. Mm-hmm. You don't hear head voice all that often nowadays outside of the opera world. That's the thing. Weston, why are we all so afraid of head voice in the pop music world? We can make it our friend. It can be a good thing. It can be something that's employed. And she... Employed it very beautifully. She also she knows how to belt. She can do that. But the fact that she was unafraid to really pop up there 
I thought was incredibly stunning. But then we move along and we get to the biggest spectacle of them all, the Super Bowl halftime show, which apparently this year was sponsored by Apple Music. Uh, so that was Usher and a whole bunch of friends. We've had a lot of interesting conversations. But Weston, did you watch the halftime? I, I did. I did. Yes, I was. Uh, I was waiting to see if Little John would be there, and he was indeed there. Which you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I enjoyed the parts where they kept tossing people extremely high in the air, um, sometimes slightly out of frame. And it was very comical and pretty top notch, if you ask me. Well, and it's definitely one of those types of performances. It's the mo- one of the more theatrical things that happens when you're thinking about things like stadium rock. Stadium right. rock is often like presented in a way that's for the people in the house. This is, I mean, you got to entertain the people in the house, but it's got a full on film crew. So you're really broadcasting to the hundreds of millions of people that are watching it in their homes and in parties. So to be able to do the quick camera pans where they were throwing all of the different people in the air, the roller skaters coming by, the HBC band with the epic horn section. A lot of that was really done in a very cinematic way so that it was, you know, something it, it that really, really it really enjoyed. does remind me of like the Met Live in HD directing, you know, where like it's <laughs> it's it, it might be super duper effective up close. And you go see the production in in, uh, in real life. And you're like, hmm, I'm not sure if that is quite as effective or there's something happening in the corner that you're like, you know, uh, the, the director is like, OK, the part that's going to be filmed is going to be very intimate, very emotional. And there's something kind of goofy happening upstage right for the audience in the house and I feel like I very much got that vibe from this halftime show very much so I mean Madonna kind of ushered in this era of spectacle as Super Bowl halftime show so this is just something that continues to sort of follow in that production value level of footsteps uh and there were you know Usher is he's been doing this for 30 years the guy's got hits is he known for his vocal prowess? Not necessarily, but the man can sing. Um, but it's really about sort of those those club banger hits of like the 90s through the 2000s through the early parts of the 2010s. And as I said to a friend, you know, I have uh, I have thrown ass in a club for a grand total of about 15 minutes my whole <laughs> life. But when I did, it was to Usher, Lil John, and Luda. So the geriatric millennial in me was terribly excited for this entire uh, production. And all of the songs were wonderful. All of the different artists having her come in on like the Prince style guitar solo was incredible. The one thing that I have seen, we'll call it criticism, of uh, from a number of music friends of mine uh, was the opening appearance of one Miss Alicia Keys. Uh, She's she's there. She's got this gorgeous red outfit to match her gorgeous red open top piano. There's a huge fabric that flies off of her, and then she's just exposed, and there she is. Um, I have seen. I've seen some criticisms of the opening notes of this performance. Would would any of you care to uh, to chat on those a bit? Yeah, I will. Um, that's that was a surprise to me, but it was a good surprise because it felt like her mic was open, and we know that in a lot of these performances, it's all lip synced. Yeah. So if they made a conscious decision for her to open up with a crack, very strong choice. But I think yeah. it was <laughs> it was a real moment and. I think those of us who are singers and listen to Alicia Keys know that she should bring everything down like a third and she'd be so much happier. But she's got courage and she always goes for those phrases, which have I don't think have ever been comfortable for her. But yeah. she goes for them and sometimes she gets them. And like yesterday, she didn't in a very big setting. And I'm like, yeah, great. That's what happens in a live performance. So I actually was, I, I'm not saying I'm delighted in it, but... 
Uh, I thought it was real, and I'd much rather have real than canned. I, I completely agree. I, I feel like so much of uh, of popular music can be so so mixed and so balanced and so uh, tuned on the fly and even lip synced that you know you you kind of get the sense you're watching a music video um, uh, instead of a live performance. And this, this, this was not that it was, it, it was a real performance. And I was like, wow. They, they, and like, let me say, speaking as a former band kid, singing, performing music of any kind in the acoustics of a football field, the worst possible acoustics known to mankind. I mean, I'm sure they had monitors, earpieces and stuff like that, but it is hard. You can't hear anything aside from yourself. Uh, and, and there's, it is such an, an antithetical way to the way humans produce noise that it is kind of incredible that it ever happens at all. And I like, you know, complete respect to her for getting out there, hitting that note, you know, not necessarily nailing it, but then going on, still getting the cheers, still like being hashtag iconic, as the kids would say. And um, yeah, I, I, I really appreciated that. Well, and I think one other thing to, well, a couple other things to think about. Uh, the first is that she was crouched down and hiding under a gigantic piece of fabric for no less <laughs> yes. than 10 minutes before she had to open up and start. <laughs> the other thing to think about is that she opens with this hit. That hit is 20 plus years old. So yeah. like people change, bodies change, voices change. And she's always been a belter and she has belted that. And I certainly can't belt as high as I used to be able to 20 years ago. I think there is absolutely no shame in taking it down from the original key one would have hoped that that would have been cool for her to do, but it didn't happen that way. But I concur with both of you, like, you know, hearing hearing genuine in the moment live performance is always going to win out for me over something that is canned, even in something that is the absurd spectacle that is the Super Bowl halftime. But all in all, it was for me, I, you know, it was delightful. I know that we're talking about the music, but I just have to say, if Usher has been doing this for 30 years, and he still looks like that. <laughs> Come on. Oh, molasses. <laughs> when he took off his shirt, I was like, wait, wait a second, wait a second. There are children watching this, you know this, right? Not anymore. Not after that. Everybody's growing as soon as that happened. <laughs> so many people went through puberty last night. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. No, I definitely, I, I advanced in my trimesters at that point. Uh, there was a joke that I saw online that in 2023 Super Bowl, Rihanna was pregnant. And in 2024 mm. Super Bowl, everybody was pregnant. <laughs> so Absolutely thank you to phenomenal. Usher for... Your talent and your beautiful abs, and we are forever grateful. Well, we know a lot about beautiful abs here on Opera Box Score. You know who else had abs? Probably Maria Callas. <laughs> May I have your attention, please? This is the Callas Countdown to 100. In her January story for the New York Times, author Farah Nayeri writes, No opera house has been more instrumental to the enduring myth of Maria Callas than the Teatro alla Scala in Milan. The article goes on to list six highlights from her career at La Scala, which, as promised, <laughs> would be recycled on OBS for our Callas 100 countdown. Nayeri begins with her very first performance on stage at La Scala as a substitute for Renata Tibaldi, who was unwell. The opera was Aida, and it was, by all accounts, a tepid debut. A skin condition had given the 26-year-old soprano facial blemishes that she awkwardly covered with veils. Franco Zaffarelli recalled, quote, This overweight Greek lady peeping out from behind her trailing chiffon with an unevenness in her voice. 
Her two remaining performances of Aida went much better, but this inaugural performance was a blow to the young prodigy's self-confidence. That debut was in April of 1950. The list continues with her December 1951 Vespri Siciliani, the first time Callas headlined a production at La Scala and opened the season. It was a triumph. The miraculous throat of Maria Managini Callas did not have to fear the demand of the opera, wrote music reviewer Franco Abbiati for the Corriere della Sera. Abbiati went on to praise the phosphorescent beauty of her tones and her technical agility, which is more than rare. It is unique. In January of 1954, Callas collaborated for the first time with Herbert von Carrion for Lucia di Lammermoor. In the mad scene where Lucia stabs Arturo on their wedding night, Callas appeared barehanded in a nightgown and messy hair on a dimly lit staircase. She had turned down the dagger and fake blood that are usually used to portray the murder. Yet her performance was so realistic that mesmerized audience members jumped up mid-performance, clapping and cheering, and tossed red carnations on stage that Callas touched as if they were globs of blood, spooky, and very in alignment with modern eco-consciousness. On May 28, 1955, La Scala audiences witnessed Callas in one of her signature roles, Violetta in La Traviata, as staged by Lucchino Visconti. The production was renowned for its realism, the intimacy and the gorgeousness of the setting, and the painterly qualities, said Neil Fisher of the New York Times. Set in La Belle Epoque with ornate decor and costumes, the show triggered another audience frenzy on opening night. People cried out Callas's name, sobbed uncontrollably, and showered the stage with red roses, which a tearful Callas picked up as she took a solo bow. Conductor Carlo Maria Giulini later confessed that he too had wept in the pit. Yet, Callas's monopolizing of attention in her solo bow was too much for tenor Giuseppe Di Stefano, who quit the show that night. <laughs> <laughs> Classic tenor behavior. Oh, <laughs> 
1957, Anna Bolena was another Visconti spectacular and another triumph. As Anne Boleyn, she gave it her all, triggering 24 minutes of applause, a La Scala record. Yet offstage in Milan, her star was starting to fade after she'd refused to perform a fifth time with the La Scala Opera Company on tour. Protesters awaited her as she headed to the Bolena premiere, and she was accompanied inside by armed police officers. When she got home on the last night of the show, there were obscenities scribbled with animal excrement on her front door and windows. By the time of her final performance at La Scala, Callas was divorced and in a relationship with Aristotle Onassis. Her voice was still dazzling audiences worldwide. Just 10 days before a performance of Carabini's Medea on May of 1962, she had sung two arias from Carmen at a celebration of President John F. Kennedy's 45th birthday. Yet, as she was performing Medea on May 29th, my birthday, a sinus infection led Callas's voice to waver, though she sang all the way to the end. An article in the Evening Standard claimed it was evident that her voice had deteriorated markedly and attributed it to her being at sea with Onassis in his boat and attending too many parties. Our thanks to Farah Nayeri for her uh, six contributions to the Callus 100. In between some of those uh, article, uh, some of those, uh, uh, in between some of those highlights from the, the article, we heard Maria Callas from the 1954 recording of the uh, Merce di Lette Amiche from Ivespri Siciliani with Tullio Serafin leading the Philharmonia Orchestra. We heard a live performance of La Traviata with Giuseppe Di Stefano from Mexico City in 1952. And uh, the last clip was the 1961 performance of Medea from La Scala. If you have any objections to our blatant theft of the New York Times or just want to help us out by sending us more Callus 100 uh, tips or uh, uh, leads, send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, mailbag at operaboxcore.com. You can also record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say tab on our website, operaboxcore.com. It's a two-minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Sir John Elliot Gardner is not quite ready to return to the stage. The Monteverdi Choir shared a statement saying, we can confirm that he has decided to extend his time away from public music making, and it is our shared aim that he will be in a position to return later in the year. News comes months after Gardner took a leave of absence after he punched bass William Thomas during a performance of Le Torian at the Berlioz Festival. Opera Philadelphia has announced their 2024-25 season. The American premiere of Missy Mazzoli and Royce Fabric's The Listeners kicks off the season, which includes Joseph Bologna's Anonymous Lover and Mozart's Don Giovanni. The other headline from the announcement is that the season will not open with the Festival O, as has been the company's tradition since 2017. Announcements about the future of O Festival will be shared this spring. 
The Spanish government has issued a proclamation of its commitment to the preservation of zarzuela as an art form. Quote, Zarzuela faces many risks and threats. This declaration of the form as a representative manifestation of immaterial cultural patrimony contributes to Zarzuela's social consideration, the interest of the general public, and as a safeguard against these challenges it faces. Say that five times fast. I can't. Vancouver <laughs> Opera is cracking down on third-party ticket sellers. Quote, the resellers in question not only charge exorbitant prices, but also jeopardize the integrity of the ticketing process, potentially leading to counterfeit tickets or denied entry to the performances, said the company in a statement. We want to emphasize that the only authorized platform for purchasing tickets to our performances is our online ticket center. Pittsburgh Opera has announced a new rideshare voucher program for patrons of the opera. The program allows ticket buyers to add $60 of Uber vouchers, of Uber, of Uber vouchers <laughs> das at Uber. no... Uber. <laughs> $60 of Uber vouchers at no extra cost. Going to the opera is a fun experience that includes more than just seeing the performance, said Marketing and Communications Director Chris Cox. We want patrons to be able to go out to dinner before the show or grab a drink afterwards and still be able to use their rideshare voucher. San Francisco Opera is one of the most historically significant opera companies in the United States, but for a long time its oldest known photograph was a panorama of the 1925 cast of Andrea Chenier, labeled Photo Number 2. Now it seems that the even older Photo Number 1, taken earlier that day, has been found. Chorus member Chung Wai Sung purchased the photo at a local antique fair and immediately asked opera archivist Barbara Rominski if she'd seen it anywhere. Quote, I took a closer look at it and went, oh, swear words. In fact, no, Chung Wai, I have never seen this photograph ever. It was a total surprise to everybody in the room. Have you ever wondered what would happen if you combine the elements of fashion, rock, and opera? Well, you can find out at Pensacola Opera's Rock the Runway, a fashion, live opera, interactive theater event that serves as a fundraiser for the opera. Soprano Allison Cambridge will perform a live set list combining rock hits from the 70s to the 90s, Beethoven, Mozart, and Tchaikovsky. Now, let's see Peter Gelb mix Dior with Donizetti. <laughs> In trade news, Washington National Opera has announced the appointment of conductor Robert Spano as music director beginning 2025. Spano is currently music director of Aspen Music Festival, Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra, and was recently named Rhode Island Philharmonic Orchestra's principal conductor. Exit stage right, renowned Japanese conductor Seiji Ozawa has passed away at age 88. He was known internationally for his work as music director of the symphonies in Toronto, San Francisco, and especially the Boston Symphony Orchestra, where he was its longest-serving music director for 29 years. He was also director of the Vienna State Opera from 2002 to 2010. In Japan, he founded the Saito Kinen Orchestra in 1984, their festival in 1992, and the Tokyo Opera Nomori in 2005. The BSO remembered Ozawa in a statement not only as a legendary conductor, but also as a passionate mentor for future generations of musicians. Pianist and vocal coach Thomas Morocco has died. After beginning his career as a conducting assistant to Leonard Bernstein, John Nelson, and James Conlon, he went on to perform with some of the world's greatest singers, including Arlie Noget, Ben Hepner, Martina Arroyo, Denise Graves, Sumi Joe, and Dolores Ajik. He joined the faculty of Manhattan School of Music in 1993 and served for 30 years. Finnish soprano Riga Hakala has died at the age of 61. She was a leading soprano at Finnish National Opera for 20 years and performed at international houses such as Stockholm, Copenhagen, the Bolshoi, Deutsche Oper am Rhein, Washington National, and the Met. 
She was also well-known as a concert soloist and performed several world premieres by contemporary composers. Mezzo-soprano and teacher Winifred Honor McKellar passed away at the age of 103. She was one of the original singers for the New Zealand Opera Company and was awarded the Queen's Service Medal for Community Service in 1989. Romanian baritone Eduard Tumagian had passed away this week. He was 82. Tumagian made his debut in his native Bucharest and went on to leading baritone roles with Paris, La Scala, Munich, Vienna, Zurich, and Amsterdam. And on this day, February 12th in 1653, was the birth of Giovanni Grossi, also known as Siface, the castrato. He was born in Tuscany. Antonio Draghi's L'Adalberto premiered in 1697 in Vienna. It was also the first performance of Jean-Philippe Rameau's Opera Ballet Les Paladins in Paris in 1760. 1814 saw the premiere of Luigi Cherubini's Bayard à Mezières in Paris at the Opera Comique. In 1825, it was Bellini's Adelson El Salvini in, uh, where is that? Uh, at the Teatro del Conservatorio di San Sebastiano. Where is that? I should know that, but I don't. It's in Naples. Oh, thank you. Uh, Severio Mercadante's Pelagio also premiered in Naples. Why didn't you help me with that one, huh? Uh, in 1869, <laughs> bass baritone Theodore Bertram was born in Stuttgart. He sang in the premiere of Sarema, an opera by Zemlinski, one of Wesson's favorites, and Der Berenhäuter of Siegfried Wagner. Hermano Volferrari's Il Campiello premiered in Milan at La Scala in 1936. In 1902, soprano Annie Konetsny was born. She had a very famous singer sister, Hilda Konetsny. Nailed it. That's the one. I, that's the one that I know. That's and the care. one you allegedly know but can't pronounce. <laughs> In 1903, Todd Duncan was born in Danville, Kentucky. He created the role of Porgy in Porgy and Bess. Happy birthday to German soprano Helga Dernesch, born this day in 1939. And on February 12, 1940, soprano Gilda Cruz Romo was born in Guadalajara, Mexico. Happy birthday to you. And that's your two-minute drill. From the original cast recording of Porgy and Bess, that was the birthday boy, Todd Duncan. So I think the biggest news from this week, uh, well, at least for us, is, of course, everything happening with uh, Opera Philadelphia. We have our finger on the pulse of what's happening <laughs> over there. So the team that brought us Breaking the Waves, Royce Fabric and Missy Mazzoli, they returned to uh, Opera Philadelphia on the main stage season uh, with the listeners. Uh, I believe it has had its premiere somewhere else because they're saying it's the American premiere. So let's assume that it happened somewhere not in America. <laughs> um, it supposedly is a thriller about social rejection, suburban loneliness, suburban loneliness, and the seductive power of cults and charismatic leaders in a divided nation. Hmm. Cults, you say? So, sign me up. Yeah, <laughs> sign familiar. <laughs> in the winter, 
the Chevalier de Saint George's anonymous lover uh, will be staged, featuring soprano Simone Harkum, who I believe sang it at Opera Minnesota, and tenor Caniso Wenxane. Wenk, I don't know how to say that. Wenxane. Uh, who was the star of the Otello from the 2022 O Festival. And friend of the show, Alison Moritz, will be directing Don Giovanni uh, next spring. Um, and right now, they have not announced what's happening with the O Festival. I feel like I keep doing things to break opera companies. So uh, maybe maybe it's not coming back. I don't know. We'll find out later on this year maybe we can get frank Luzzi to come on and tell us what's happening at opera philadelphia which you will remember you'll be reminded uh is down a general director and is down a vp of marketing so if anyone's looking to hire you know oliver camacho can come over and break yeah. it completely <laughs> i can i can work remote so oh, i can destroy your company from here in chicago <laughs> the other big news uh in the music world perhaps even more so because you know we're obviously such fans of opera philadelphia we we have our own interests here but in the general world of classical music i think the the big the big thing that happened this past week was the death of Seiji Ozawa. Um, and uh, I have seen tributes everywhere, uh, really kind of the first Japanese conductor to really gain like international prominence. He's, he's one of those conductors that I don't have a ton of recordings of, but every time I hear anything he's, he's recorded, his style is immediately clear and immediately like, you know, oh, it's a good time. I, I have never in my life disliked a performance by uh, Seiji Ozawa, which is saying something because I, I've seen some uh, great composers have some real une unevenness to them. And uh, it's a it's a big hit to the music world and one that I think is leaving a lot of people uh, a bit depressed at the moment. Yeah, I mean, he was definitely known for, you know, his his time with the BSO, his time in Vienna, you know, and he had, you know, he was he was sort of known as this orchestral conductor, but he did a lot of really great work with singers. Uh, yeah. You know, there's there's footage that's been sort of running around the social media this week of, you know, conversations between him and singers talking about the art and talking, you know, in rehearsal process, just really, and it just shows you what a, what a genuine and genuinely excited musician he was he really yeah. really loved music and he really loved this art form you know and he has uh you know he has an opera for uh or sorry he has an opera he has <laughs> a grammy for best opera recording that he got i think about 10 years ago with uh with the saito kinan uh matsumoto festival uh and then he's also got that really incredible recording with renee fleming and in uh the new york times when he when he first passed the new york times put out basically like this is your hit list. If you want recordings from Seiji Ozawa, th these are the eight quintessential Ozawa recordings. And his, well, a version of his Peleos with Boston Symphony is on there. So there's uh, there's some really, really great stuff about this human. And he he did, um, there was a quote that he told to uh, Haruki Murakami when he was in his 70s. So, you know, almost 20 years ago. Even at my age, you change and practical experience keeps you changing. This may be one of the distinguishing features of the conductor's profession. The work itself changes you. And I think that's a really nice capsulation of the type of artist that he was. He was always trying to, you know, honor the art, keep it fresh, learn from his peers, but also mentor that next mm -hmm. generation of musicians and multiple generations of musicians that were behind him. So 
it, you know, it's a, it's not a surprising loss given that he was in his late eighties, but it's still uh yeah, this one hit me pretty good. Yeah. And, and such a, a key figure in uh, Japanese classical music as well. Like his impact overseas, you know, here in the West has been huge, but even, even larger in Japan and, you know, uh, it's uh, it, it's a big loss, um, and but you know I think he's one of those people who's done a really good job of making sure that he's not the he's not the only person you hear about from that country anymore. It's it's really uh, it, he was really something. Um, speaking of uh, things that are legacies and uh, making sure that things are around for the future, Zarzuela. <laughs> Is apparently, according Heavens. to Spain, on the chopping block. We got to bring out the ten-letter <laughs> words in the thesaurus to save it. <laughs> At every I don't think we turn. have much of an opinion because we're not uh, Zarzuela box score. We're opera box score, but <laughs> that's our spin-off show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's our HD two channel. Um, yeah, I mean, there are many art forms that are in danger. And uh, we have to save ballet, you know. I don't know if we have enough energy to save Zarzuela as well. So uh, maybe <laughs> all the operalia. Well, that's why we're going to let the Spanish do it. <laughs> yes. They've got this in hand. They 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 are they are taking a stand. They are making sure it's going to be fine. I think it's the responsibility of all the people who won the opera the operalia Zarzuela prize <laughs> to get that, together. That was create, exactly like, a, the joke I was about to make. Yeah, Oliver. they have to create like a super team of you're the our, new coalition. Exactly. <laughs> Like Nick Fury shows up in the end credits and says, I'm forming a team of elite Zarzuela performers. Let's talk a little bit about this uh, uh, This actually great idea in Pittsburgh. These Uber vouchers, or as Uber, Oliver says, das Uber, Uber voucher. Uh, I think this is great. I, I This is such a win for accessibility to make sure not, not only that people can get to the opera house and back, but to give them vouchers so that they can make a whole evening out of it. You know, you don't have to feel like you are, um, you know, just limited to just the performance. You can have the same night out that most opera enjoyers enjoy with much greater accessibility. This is great for people who have mobility issues, who can't necessarily take a train, um, or, uh, you know, uh, or, you know, younger people who are maybe like a little bit trepidatious about their first opera. I love this little plan and I really want to see more companies imitate it in the future. But it almost feels like, you know, like the New Year's Eve plan, like from the government. Like uh, <laughs> we got to give people like, they're going to go to the opera, they're going to get wasted. <laughs> so get them home safely, you know. Well, we have to be grateful to the Richard King Mellon Foundation because they are the ones that are funding this program. Everything in Pittsburgh has the word Mellon on it somewhere, basically. And uh, yeah, I mean, when you think about it, like th the ticket's not the only thing that you have to think of when it comes to financing an evening at the opera. So to go ahead and make sure that like this part of it's covered, so that's one less thing you have to worry yep. about. I yep. think it's a it's a really nice gesture, and for a house of this size, it's not particularly large. That's really cool. I would like to see other houses of that size do that. Absolutely. And even bigger and smaller. I think it's uh, it's just such a great program. Uh, and, you know, great programs can lead to great solutions to great problems. And one great problem, if you'll follow me here, to have <laughs> is that there are too many ticket scalpers in Vancouver trying to sell your uh, fake oh, opera yeah. tickets. That is. Uh, oh, how did I didn't they... see that map that you were going through. Weston, <laughs> there was a flowchart. I, I went to my mind palace. <laughs> Impressive. I mean, that is pretty cool that Vancouver is having a problem with third-party ticket vendors. It means that demand is that high. 
um, yeah, we want we want that problem. You know, we'll we'll solve it when we get to it. But yeah, maybe the next time I go see uh, a, a Stockhausen opera, uh, they won't be paying the scalpers won't be paying me money to see it. Although I do like that as a perk since I was going to be there anyway. <laughs> um, I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, the chorister Chung Wai Sung for uh, discovering that ancient photo. You know, maybe he uh, is the one to find that missing Gilbert and Sullivan manuscript to Utopia Limited that we were it's talking in his house. about a month ago. It's gotta He's be got in it in house. his back pocket somewhere. Let's wrap the show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. That's how we end this show. Let's start with Oliver Camacho. Well, there are reports that Rafael Nadal will make his return to the tour uh, next week in the tournament in Doha. Uh, he withdrew from the very beginning of the season, not playing in the Australian Open, and we all want to see him come back. We have low expectations for how far he'll get in any tournament these days, but we just want to see him. We can't let his career end like with injury. Ashley Hardgrave. I am completely obsessed with with the Groundhog Day musical. No, not that one that is done by Tim Minchin. The one that is currently being crowdsourced on TikTok. Have mm-hmm. you guys heard about this? It's oh, yeah. absolutely fascinating. So there's a musical, musical theater composer. Uh, he goes by the screen name Olive Songs. He's committed to basically writing a song a day for the next year. And so they're just little fun ditties. And so on February 2nd, Groundhog Day, he wrote a musical theater song for a fake musical about Punxsutawney Phil with his wife, Phyllis. And the music is Sondheim incarnate. It's incredible. <laughs> the transitions are beautiful. The The patter and the syncopation is stunning. And so what happened is it was so good that other creators have been popping into and duetting with his video and layering in additional characters, including Phyllis, Punxsutawney Phil's wife, the mayor, who is a gorgeous baritone voice who's a public school music teacher townspeople there's even somebody who is playing the role of phil's shadow who is secretly in love with him uh i need this to become a real piece literally in the week that the 10 days excuse me that it's been happening it has blown up mandy patinkin commented on one of the videos and talked about how good the song was so i need this groundhog day musical to become a reality i'm manifesting it now universe make it so That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Get your voice heard and find links to stuff we've talked about on our website, operaboxscore.com. But that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS using the Support the Team tab. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is me. For co-hosts Ashley Hardgrave and George Cedarquist with guest Carolyn Sloan, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you proclaim your commitment to the preservation of Zarzuela as an art form. We're back with an all-new show next week, plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas! Join us.